0: Well, good morning, Sojourn. Um, I'm really excited to be with you. We are in our summer series on the book of Daniel. And last week, one of our sent ones uh, brought us Daniel chapter 3. And really what we're looking at is we're looking at uh, the life of Daniel, kind of a portrait of the life of Daniel and his courage. So last week, we saw three of Daniel's friends stand up in a courageous way uh, in a society that oppresses them and the Lord. But in chapter four, we come to something a little bit different uh, in the book of Daniel because we move away from Daniel and his friends. And at the beginning of chapter four, we actually see a letter penned by Nebuchadnezzar. Like he he probably had someone write this for him because he was an important dude, and he probably had a scribe write it. But it is a personal testimony, a personal witness of Nebuchadnezzar's experience. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to detour away from the life of Daniel and into Nebuchadnezzar. And in many ways, Nebuchadnezzar is a portrait, the opposite portrait of who Daniel was. Daniel was humble and courageous, whereas Nebuchadnezzar is the picture of pride and self-centeredness. So I want to confess to you before we start this morning that this passage has wrecked me. Um, the first couple times I read it, I was like, this is a crazy story. I, I wonder like, what God is teaching here. And then like, the third time I read it, it was just like, oh, OK, Lord, in your sovereign hand, there's a reason you had me preach a a message on pride and humility. So I want to ask you that this morning, to slow down. As we walk through this text, as I preach this word, that you will reflect on your own heart. And where do you see pride welling up? Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning with the chaos of life around us, with kids and jobs and the pressures of life, pain that we experience. Lord, we ask that you just move those aside for the moment. Help us to be present in this moment. Lord, as we examine the life of King Nebuchadnezzar, Lord, may we see where our life fits, how our life has pride rooted in it. It festers and grows. Lord, may we be encouraged by the power of the gospel in our lives, Lord, that you are able to change. Lord, I pray that you work in us in a powerful way, Lord. Do not leave us to ourselves. May you change us from the inside out in this moment, Lord. May we experience your grace. May the word of God move in us and through us. Help us to be different people, Lord. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So this is actually a really big chapter. Uh, We read a section of it. But I want to be able to go back and kind of scan over, tell the story of what's happening in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And if you'll remember from the first three chapters, God is showing up in a powerful way over and over again. And he's doing it through the life of Daniel. He's doing it through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But God is showing his grace and mercy through judgment. You you see initially Daniel standing up and saying, I'm not going to eat from the food's table or from the king's table no matter what it costs me. You see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, we will not bow to this huge statue that Nebuchadnezzar has built to himself. So they're thrown into the fire, and God appears with them. Um, and Nebuchadnezzar sees all these things. He even proclaims, you should worship the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But we get to chapter 4, and he, his praises have been short-lived. Soon after these experiences, the king is at his home. He's comfortable. He's got uh, a huge palace around him, and he has this dream. And the dream shakes him up a bit. In his dream, the, the king sees a tall tree that's planted in the center of the earth. And it goes high into the sky. It's so big, in fact, everyone in his whole kingdom can see the tree. And this tree is able to provide shade for animals, uh, birds rest in the tree, and it provides enough food for everyone in the kingdom. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, out of the sky, an angel comes. And the angel declares, cut the tree down. Cut off its branches, but leave the stump. The angel continues, he says, Uh, Let the man who this tree represents, let him be drenched with rain, eat with the wild animals, let him lose his mind, and be given the mind of an animal. So Nebuchadnezzar wakes up from his dream, and he calls all of his advisors from all over the kingdom. He tells them the, the dream, and he asks for an interpretation. And like God has often done in the book of Daniel, no one can interpret it, but God's servant alone, Daniel. And Daniel initially is really shocked because he knows what this dream means. And if he tells it to the king, the the king's probably not gonna take it really well. But with great courage, Daniel gives the king advice. Um, He tells him the dream. He tells him all that is about to happen. And then in verse 27, this is what he says to the king. King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Speak from your wicked, break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. So in God's mercy, He gives this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. He sends his servant to interpret the dream as a warning. And then right at the end, Daniel, with all his courage, says, King, let me give you a word of advice. Turn away from your sin. Turn to the Lord. And maybe he will prosper you. But did the king listen to Daniel? No, he didn't listen. And it says for 12 months, he continued in his pride and his vain glory to the point he stands on the roof of his palace. I can imagine probably a killer palace. He stands on the roof, and he he declares this. Look at the great city of Babylon. By By my own mighty power have I built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. Now that, my friends, is a statement of arrogance. He stands on this palace, and he basically says, look at me, everybody. I'm awesome. I'm amazing. I built this great city by my own power. And it displays my splendor. Now, before we're too quick to judge, I want us to be reminded that, however crazy this story is, that Nebuchadnezzar was not your average king. So he wasn't like you and me, but not even like kings around him. Let's look at the life of Nebuchadnezzar for a moment. Nebuchadnezzar was at the height of power over one of the greatest kingdoms to ever exist. Babylon, we we look at all the way back to the Tower of Babel and onward. It is even a picture of like wickedness in the Bible, but he was considered the greatest king Babylon ever had. He conquered many nations through battle, including God's people. He built some of the most impressive structures like um, these waterways that fed water all throughout Babylon. But he also built a 90-foot statue of himself, uh, which if you stop and think about that, is ridiculous. (laughs) But he does. like. He's so boastful and proud of himself. He builds a statue and says, worship me. He also strengthened the city of Babylon and made it the largest city in the world. So here's a picture of what Babylon could have looked like. Largest city in the world. So it is understandable why he would stand on a rooftop and say, look at me, everybody. He had, he was the greatest king of one of the greatest empires on earth. However, He was nothing and nobody when compared with God. Nebuchadnezzar let his pride and his vanity destroy him. And I still think this is God's grace to take one of the greatest kings of the greatest empires in all of history and use this as an example for us, that even him, even someone like Nebuchadnezzar cannot stand under the glory of God. So humanly speaking, he had a lot to be arrogant about. And the first four chapters of Daniel God is showing his glory and his power to Nebuchadnezzar over and over again, over and over again. In the midst of his judgment, there was mercy. Nebuchadnezzar's whole life was marked by pride and vanity. And this morning, I want us to let the life of Nebuchadnezzar be a warning to us that pride, when left to fester and grow in your life, will destroy you. It will destroy you. It may seem like a simple sin, uh, an acceptable sin that you can coddle in your life but it will root and it will fester and it will be our destruction. So I know those are strong words, but they're intended to be strong words because the Bible is a book of people who let sin fester, specifically pride, and it did bring destruction. So if you remember Nebuchadnezzar is actually not the first king to bask in his glory. He's not the first king to let pride to destroy him. So let's think about a few Kings, uh, throughout the Bible. Remember Pharaoh, So Pharaoh, he was king over this huge kingdom of Egypt, and he had God's people enslaved to serve him. So God raises up his servant Moses and Aaron, and he sends them to Pharaoh to bring about warnings. Let my people go. Let my people go. In fact, not just words from his servants, but he sends 10 devastating plagues, plague after plague. And Pharaoh's response in his pride and vainglory was to harden his heart, to turn away from God. And the result of that was ultimately the death and suffering of his people, including his very son and himself. So that was Pharaoh. Remember King Saul. That was, king Saul was actually God's chosen king to rule his people. But he let pride and disobedience rule him, and God stripped the kingdom away. And I love this. He gave it to a boy. Now, when we think of King David, we think of this mighty king who, like, raised the kingdom up and is this great leader. But when he initially got the kingdom, he was a little shepherd boy, a humble boy in the field. God took it away from a prideful king and gave it to a little boy. So there's all kinds of kings. We can go through ruler after ruler in this book, the Bible, and we can look at examples of people who let pride fester in their lives. But one of the most jarring examples of pride bringing someone's destruction is the example of Lucifer. Think about it. Lucifer was not a king, but he was a mighty angel that God created to worship and serve him perfectly. But instead of worshiping God, he let pride fester in his heart. He rebelled against God because he thought he was better than God, that he could be God. And that's the root of a lot of our sin, right? Really, it's the root of all of our sin. We want to be God of our lives. We do. We think that we know better than the creator and sustainer of the world. Just stop and think about that for a moment. Our pride is a reflection that we believe we know better than the God who created and sustains all things. Satan used the sin of pride that destroyed him. He went to the garden, and he used the sin of pride to tempt Adam and Eve to eat the fruit, and they did, which brought about destruction and sin for all of us. Thinking even about their children, Cain was filled with jealousy and pride over Abel, and he killed his brother. And story after story after story of pride that festers in our heart, and comes out in continued sin. When we really stop and think about the pervasiveness and power of pride in this world, it's a terrifying thought. Pride, vanity, and self-centeredness are often safe and acceptable sins. Or that's what we think, right? We think that it's a safe and acceptable sin. It's just a basic sin. But pride is a root sin that gives life to so many other sins, and in fact, gives life to death itself. It feeds death itself. Pride can mask itself as self-confidence, self-preservation. So I'm just confident in who God has made me, and I'm going to lead out with that self-preservation. I have to protect myself and my own. It can come out in things like humble brags, which I'm sure you have experienced quite a bit, or I have experienced quite a bit as well. It can also show up as working our way up the ladder. Just all kinds of ways that pride can fester and display itself in different ways. But don't be fooled. Don't believe a lie that pride in any form, pride in any form when it's left to fester and grow will destroy you. I think about my lifelong battle with pride. I was reflecting on this. Like I said, that this passage wrecked me as I started uh, realizing that God had me preach this passage because he wanted to preach this to me first and foremost. I have this lifelong battle of wanting to prove myself. Now, it may look like hard work or dedication, but as I search my own heart, I find that what it really is is selfish pride. I want to do life and ministry on my own because I, I want to be better than other people. So I, I can feel unique and special. I want to do life and ministry in my own power to prove myself, prove, my, prove myself to you and to others around me. But mainly, I want to prove that I have worth, that I'm somebody, and that I belong. Now, I know that's a little raw, but as the scriptures have unpacked my heart, I realize that I have this battle with pride. And I can remember this coming out just a few years ago. um, Actually, it's probably been like 10 years ago when I first started getting into ministry. uh, One of the first places I worked, uh, I was really growing in my faith and I was learning a lot and I was being mentored. And one of the things I wanted to do was to preach and teach more. Maybe that's your experience. Maybe you're here and you want to do ministry and you want to, there's something that you want to do. And, and that morning as I came to church, I didn't realize, but one of my other young coworkers was going to be preaching. And when he got up my heart filled with envy and jealousy and pride. And this is what I thought. I thought, why is he up there preaching and not me? He's not better than me. I'm better than that guy. Now, What I initially thought was I'm a better preacher than that guy. But the reality of what I thought is I'm better than he is. And I remember in that moment that uh, comparison, the pride of comparison or jealousy or envy, I could feel it welling up in my throat, like it made me physically sick to see my sin. And that was just one way that pride comes out in my life. But before you judge me, go ahead, but before you do, let me ask you, how does pride come out in your life? Maybe it comes out like it did for me. You, you think you're better than other people. You see other people's success, and what you do behind their back is you bash them. You talk badly of them. Or you think when they get a new job, or they finally get married, or they experience whatever in life, you think that should be me. Or maybe it comes out in a critical spirit. In most situations in your life, you find yourself being critical of others. Maybe it comes out in being sarcastic. You think you're being funny, but really you're just bashing and criticizing other people. Or maybe you degrade other people or degrade yourself. Behind a critical spirit is a spirit of pride that thinks it deserves better. Maybe for you, you talk too much. I'm going to get personal here, Okay, Just prepare yourself. Maybe you talk too much because you think you have something important to say. Or maybe when you do talk, all you do is talk about yourself. Or maybe as you're having conversations, you always find ways to steer the conversation back to you. Maybe for you, it's, it's not about talking too much or thinking you're better than other people, but you're consumed with what others think about you. The way you dress, you're wondering what people will think about that. You have a conversation, you walk away, and you think, what do they think? Ah, oh, I sounded dumb. I shouldn't have said that. And you're just constantly. F- with this with this concept of, what do people think of me? Or maybe the way you engage in social media. Now, I'm not saying all social media is bad, but this is what I will say. Social media has a tendency for us to take the reality of life, to whitewash it, and to put it on display to say, this is what life's really like. Life's not really like that. So maybe you do that so that other people will think well of you. Or maybe you look at other people's social media accounts And then you degrade yourself. Why can't I have that? Why can't my life be perfect? Why can't my kids not cry? Here's the reality. Behind all those social media posts is a crazy, underwhelming life just like you and I have. But that's how we engage in those things, right? We engage in the sense like, what do people think of me? How can I make myself look good? Or maybe for you, pride comes out as false humility. Your language is filled with self-deprecation. It's this woe is me attitude. Oh, woe is me. I think this is, you, this is a, a real struggle in our generation. You think poorly of yourself, but behind that self-deprecation, that woe-is-me language, is false humility. So you may think, well, I'm not humble. I, I never boasted myself. But by degrading yourself, you believe that you deserve better. And church, this is pride, too. Pride can come out as a mask of independence of being unteachable, of shifting blame to others, of giving your opinion when it's not asked for, of impatience, of using other people to, for your own good, or even to maximize other people's sin so that you can th- therefore minimize your own sin. Now, I know I'm heaping a lot of guilt and condemnation on you in this moment, but I just want us to sit in the reality that sin is a universal problem. It feeds, it festers our lives. In the story of Nebuchadnezzar, we are getting a picture of a life. What happens when pride goes unchecked? When the gospel doesn't meet pride, what can happen? It can destroy a life. So however pride shows up in your life, however ugly and nasty it is, we need to take comfort in knowing that God has a remedy for your pride. And it's not you working harder. It's not you having a system. It's not you doing uh, a checklist every day. God's remedy for pride is to experience true humility through his mercy. Look back at verse 27. Daniel just gave this inter- interpretation, and then at the end of the interpretation, in courage, Daniel says, let me give you an invitation, king. Let me give you a word of advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. So I love this. There's this like really terrifying dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. Daniel interprets it, and afterwards, he's like, oh, what, what, how's the king going to react? And he responds by saying, there is mercy to you in the midst of judgment. God is inviting you to experience a better life. And here's what he says. Daniel invites Nebuchadnezzar to humble himself before God. And that's what the passage says, right? All of these things are going to happen to you, Nebuchadnezzar, until you realize that the Lord of lords is the one who is Lord over kingdoms. Not you. You're not the one who rules these things. You didn't build Babylon. The king of all the world, the, the creator and sustainer of life itself is the one who raises up kings and pushes them down. Humble yourself before God. One of the ways we humble ourselves before God is we turn away from our sin. That's what Daniel says, turn away from your wickedness. You turn away from your wickedness. Repentance literally means to turn away from something to something. We turn away from sin, and we turn to God. And a result of true repentance is life change. And that's why Daniel says this to Nebuchadnezzar. Humble yourself before God, turn away from your sin, and do good to others. Show mercy to the poor. A life of humility is marked by service, by pouring your light out for others. And Daniel was telling the king that repentance and humility lead to God's mercy. As I mentioned earlier, sadly, Nebuchadnezzar does not respond to the invitation. The text tells us that he continues in his sin and self-glory for a year. He hears this terrifying dream. He listens to Daniel. And for a full year, he lives in his self-glory, to the point where he goes up on top of the roof, that picture that I showed you, this beautiful palace, the largest city in the world. And he looks out, and he says, I'm the man. Look how awesome I am. Look at all that I have done. And at that very moment, I love this, while the words are still in his mouth, the creator of the world strips his kingdom away. Not only does he strip his kingdom away, he takes his literal mind, his sanity, and he takes it from him. And he pushes him out to live as an animal. He eats like an animal. The rain falls on him. Now, Nebuchadnezzar does repent. He does turn his face toward God. But he doesn't repent until he is totally humiliated, everything. He lost everything, who he was, what he did, food. Even, even his own mind, he lost all. it took all of that to be able to experience and understand God's mercy. And I, I think, church, this is how you and I often experience humility as well. We often have to go through an intense time of pain, suffering, and loss to fully experience the humble life. And I've meditated on this all week long uh, and how terrifying it is that when we experience pain and suffering, we do one of two things. We move toward God in repentance and humility, or we turn into ourselves and we sit and fester in our pride. By God's grace, Nebuchadnezzar did repent. He does praise the Lord. But what God often does in our life is he breaks us down so that we can slow down enough to see who we really are and to who God wants us to be. Think about that. Whatever pain and pressure and suffering you are experienced or have experienced or will experience, whatever that is, part of what God is doing is he's slowing you down enough to see who you really are, to expose you so that you'll come to him. So I'm not saying you should rejoice in whatever season you're in or whatever season's coming or whatever season you're coming out of, but let the pressures of life push you to Jesus. Let it expose your heart so that you can experience the humble life. God uses the pressures of life to make us like him. I love what one of the commentators I read said. He says, it is precisely through the storms of life that God will show us who we really are, and even more importantly, who he really is. And that's what God was doing in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, bringing him to total humiliation. And that's what he often does in our life. He uses the pressures to draw us him and to make us like him. So as we come face to face with our pride and as we experience true humility through suffering, we are experiencing the mercy and goodness of God in our life. And as I was thinking about Nebuchadnezzar and I was thinking about Daniel and I was reflecting my own life, I couldn't help but think about the life of Jesus. When we think about a life lived in true humility, what a perfect picture. And Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 2. Here's what he says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come, become as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross." Wow. When we think about pride and humility, what a powerful passage. Paul here is calling us to live humble lives like our Savior lived. The God of the universe could have chosen to come in all his glory in so many different ways. He could have come as a king and been exalted, but he chose in his kindness to come as a servant. Because what we needed in that moment, and what we still need in this moment, is we need to experience a Savior who is a servant. And he says as much. Jesus tells us that the way to greatness is through humility and service. Look in Matthew 20. Jesus says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So right before this passage, right before he talks about greatness is found in servitude, the disciples are arguing who's going to be the greatest. Jesus is about to throw off the Roman government. He's about to reign supreme. And which of us is going to serve on his right hand? Is it you? Is it me? It's going to be me. No, it's going to be you. And what the disciples were doing is they were displaying pride in its perfect form. They're standing right next to the Savior of the world, and they're boasting, and who's the greatest? And Jesus responds to them by saying the greatest are those who serve. The greatest in my kingdom are those who pour their lives out for others. Now I want us to stop and just to think about this for a minute. Those who live and serve in humility are great. Those who pour their lives out for others are great. Those who die to themselves, who don't find their identity in position or comfort or wealth, but who instead give their lives away are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Church, I think you and I have bought into a lie. We have bought into a lie that greatness is something to be earned or to be proven. The world around us tells us that. The church often tells us that. Work harder, strive harder, do better, do, 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 do. And the reality is that those who are great pour their lives out to Jesus by serving others. I don't know about you. But as I sit in, as I think on, as I meditate on the life of Nebuchadnezzar, his prideful life has wrecked me because I see a reflection of myself in Nebuchadnezzar. Now, sure, I'm not the greatest king of the, one of the greatest empires in the world, but there are plenty of times I stand on my palace and I declare I'm the man. And God's invitation to us is to repent of our sins to run to Jesus and to experience the humble life that Jesus has lived for us. So as we meditate on these truths, what does it look like to grow in true humility? How can we become more like Christ in the humble life that he lived? The text shows us three different ways that we can grow in humility. First of all, we see that Nebuchadnezzar and us, we're called to live regular lives of repentance, a regular life of repentance. So Nebuchadnezzar was boastful, he was prideful, and his call was to repent and to recognize that it is God who establishes kingdoms. He is the one who installs kings. But what God was calling him to and us to is not a one-off repentance, I sinned, so I need to repent. He's calling us to a lifestyle of repentance. And we see this lifestyle of repentance is when we live in community with others and we live rooted and abiding in Jesus. And what a Christian is called to do is to always be examining their lives, the sin and the struggle that's in their life, bringing that to God, asking forgiveness, and also bringing that to our brothers and sisters and confessing those sins. So someone who lives a humble life, someone who grows in the humble life, lives a regular life of repentance before God and with others. Another way we can grow in uh, a true humility is we live a life of worship and praise. So it's true, Nebuchadnezzar was an arrogant jerk. Absolutely. You read the passage, you're like, I can't believe that guy. But God broke him, and he repented. And look at what he does in verse 2 and 3. This is him writing this. God, that's the crazy thing. God uses Nebuchadnezzar to pen part of the Bible. Now, again, he's probably having someone write this, but this is coming from Nebuchadnezzar. Here's what he says. I'm pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High God has done for me. How great are his miracles and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. The same guy who stood on the rooftop declaring his greatness just moments before, moments after, as he's looking back and reflecting on his life, he declares God's praises. So a way that we can grow in true humility is to live a life of worship and praise. Now, part of that is coming on a Sunday singing these amazing songs that our worship team leads us in. But it's also having a life of gratitude and praise all throughout our day, all throughout our day, moving and worshiping and praising. And sometimes it's singing, sometimes it's our harp posture, but it's a life of worship, a regular life of worship. Repentance, worship, and then lastly, we see a life of service to others. We look at Nebuchadnezzar, we don't see how he serves others, but that's part of the call in verse 27. He's called to turn away from God, turn away from a sin, and to have mercy on the poor. The outworking of worship and repentance is a life of service to others. We see this most clearly in Jesus's life. So these are three ways that we can grow in worship. We can practically seek to, to be more humble people. But we need to remember that humility is ultimately seen in the life of Jesus. It's not something we strive for, but it's something we sit in and we take in from Jesus. That in Jesus, in his full humility, he was God who took on flesh and came as a baby. He's God who chose to go to the cross and bear his life out for you and I with these pictures of humility. When we realize of humility toward God, we are reflecting the very life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. As you humble yourselves before others, you are declaring the gospel with your life. But we need to remember that we cannot live lives of humility in our own strengths. This is not something um, that you can do like, I'm going to lose 20 pounds or I'm going to bench press 300 pounds. You can't work toward those things. Because if you were somehow manufacture humility, that wouldn't even fit with humility, right? That goes against what humility stands for. I love how Hannah Anderson puts it um, in her book, Humble Roots. She says, humility is accurately understanding ourselves and our place in the world. Humility is understanding that without God, we are nothing. We must give up the pretense that we can root ourselves. We must reject the pride that believes in humility as a concept but refuses to actually be humble before God. The trouble, of course, is that it is our very pride that keeps us from being healed of our pride. So before we can even begin to answer his call to come to him, Jesus must come to us. Because we can never sufficiently humble ourselves, Jesus humbled himself. And by doing so, he became both the model and the means of our humility. Through his, death and resu- his life, death, and resurrection, he imparts the humble life to us once again. Did you see that? That we don't have the strength or the power to come to Jesus, so in humility, Jesus came to us. That is the very definition of humility. Christ came to us. And I love how she puts it in the, the last uh, section we read. Jesus humbled himself, and by doing so, he became both the model, an example for us, and the means, the very way we experience humility. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he imparts the humble life to us. How can we fight pride and live in humility? The only way that we can become humble people is by embracing Jesus and rooting our life in him. You want to grow in humility, you want pride to dissipate from your life, go be with Jesus. Root your life in him fully and firmly. Church, embrace the warning in this passage. Pride leads to destruction. It seems right to seek our own glory, to seek our own name, but it will only lead to our misery. Instead, embrace the invitation when we humble ourselves before God and seek to live lives of humility. God's gift to us is the humble life. God's gift to us is life itself. And communion is a perfect reminder of this idea of pride and humility. Jesus, in perfect humility, came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He showed us what it means to be humble. And then with his disciples, he broke bread and said, this is my body broken for you. This bread is a very picture, a real picture that you're going to hold in your hands that Jesus gave himself in his humility so that you could have life. In the same way, he took a cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you, pouring out in humility so we can experience life. So church, as you come forward or or go backward to grab communion and you break off the piece of the bread and you dip it in the wine or juice, I want you to prepare your heart. Before you come, confess, Lord, I am a prideful person. It's rooted all in my life. But as I go to take communion, I want to experience, not just think of or meditate on, but experience what humility is. And by taking communion, we experience the life of Jesus. His body was broken for you. His blood was literally, literally poured out so we could experience the humble life. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you when we take Daniel 4 and we look at the life of Nebuchadnezzar, it is like a mirror that shows us who we are. We stand on the rooftop, and we declare that we are God over all that we survey. Lord, break us of our pride in this moment. Father, I pray as we come and take communion, as we experience communion, as we touch the bread, and as we dip it in the wine and juice, help us to be reminded, Lord, that you are the humble one. Lord, you are the picture of greatness, and your greatness was defined as brokenness. Lord, may we be broken before you. Lord, let us experience you in this moment. Let us be changed from prideful people to people who live and root our lives in humility. It's in your name I pray, amen.